Hello, listeners, and welcome to the very first episode of This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, a podcast program of Monmouth University's Black and African Diaspora Forum. I'm Dr. Nicole Pulliam, your host. Today on This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, we have Dr. Nicole Parsons Pollard, who will share her experiences and provide insight into the topic of Blacks in higher education. Dr. Parsons Pollard was recently appointed as the Associate Provost for Faculty Affairs at Georgia State University and previously served as the Vice Provost for Academic and Faculty Affairs at Monmouth University. Dr. Parsons Pollard, I am both grateful and excited to have you on the show today as our official first guest. So thank you for that. And are you ready to make history together? Absolutely. All right, let's get into it. So first, I'd like to hear about your career trajectory in higher education. And if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you the question by referencing one of my favorite early 2000 films, Brown Sugar, if that's all right with you. So when did you fall in love with higher education? Wow. So great movie. Great question. Um, I fell in love with education while I was in my PhD program, I entered into my doctoral program thinking, I'm going to be a researcher and I wanted to move to Washington, D.C. and work for the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. That was my goal. And I received a call from a good friend of mine who was also in the program. And I was at Virginia Commonwealth University and they had started what we now know as freshman transitional programs. And it was called VCU 101 and they needed people to teach. And she says to me, oh, you should do it. Just go meet with this guy and you'll enjoy it. And so I did. I literally didn't even realize I was on a job interview. I thought I was volunteering to do this. And I'm about two weeks into teaching the class it's at eight o'clock in the morning. It's a one credit class. It's like once a week. And I, every day I'm driving to work and I'm working at the police department at the time. And so I've got this 45 minute drive where I'm talking to my husband and I'm like, and the students did this and the students said that, and they're so wonderful. And I'm enjoying every bit of it. Two weeks in, I get a call and they say, can you come and fill out your HR paperwork? And I'm thinking, for what? And they said, so we can pay you. And I thought, oh, my goodness gracious, you're going to actually pay me to do what I've been enjoying all these past couple of weeks. And I remembered an interview with Michael Jordan, and he was talking about basketball and his love of the game. And so a lot of times we talk about athletes and how much they earn, but his entire conversation was about the fact that he would play basketball for free. That's how much he loved it. But the money was just the icing on the cake. And what I knew at that moment was that I had found the thing that I was absolutely willing to do for free. And from that moment on, I sort of never looked back and started taking courses in a preparing future faculty program that we had on campus. And it was wonderful. Wow. I, I, I always I'm smiling as you're talking because I love to hear um, 
you know, people's sort of early career interests and, you know, what the, what got them excited about it. So I know you can't see me and the listeners can't see me, but I'm smiling as you're talking because that's that's really what we all aim for. Um, so before I ask you a little bit more to talk through your career milestones and then your eventual shift into administration, um, what I didn't ask you was, what your background was in. You mentioned that you worked at the police station. And what I didn't ask you for was, you know, what your doctoral degrees and et cetera were in. So can you just share that with the audience? I have a master's in criminal justice and a PhD in public policy and administration. And so my research and my focus has always been in areas of criminal justice. Okay. Thank you. All right. So walk us through, and I know that there were many highlights um, throughout your career, I'm sure. Walk us through some of the key highlights um, up into what led you into senior level administration, because I think, you know, people really need to hear that before we get into some of the really nitty gritty questions that I want to ask you about being a black woman in higher education. So if you can sort of summarize, (laughs) if you can, those career milestones or what led you into administration, can you do that for us? Yes. So one in particular I always talk about, but now that you you, um, mention it, I think there's three milestones in particular that if those things had not happened, we would not be talking today. Um, My first was my decision to leave a research one institution and to go and work in an HBCU. Um, The the second was the shift that took place in my research agenda because of that change in institutions. And the third one was that I did not win the vote to become department chair, um, which I I always credit as being one of the milestones that sort of got me to where I am. Um, And so when I left Virginia Commonwealth University, I was a graduate of their doctoral program. Oddly enough, the dean of my college, Dr. Bob Hallsworth, and was on my committee, as well as my um, dissertation committee advisor, Dr. Laura Moriarty, was by then working in the provost office, and she was probably the vice provost for academic and faculty affairs by then. Very odd to have those two high-level administrative people on your committee, but that's just sort of the way mine shook out because they were on the committee, and as you work through your program, they ascended to different roles. And so Um, when I was there from the time I defended, my dean says, I don't want you to leave. We really want you to stay and work here. And I graduated in December and I started as a tenure track faculty member in January. And so like, great, no, like having to look for a job. I loved VCU. But that was the moment that I realized that students have a different experience than the faculty who work at the institution. And I got my first entree into faculty politics. And I was assigned a mentor who was new to the institution as well. And it was not a great relationship. 
Um, I also had another mentor who was outside of my discipline, and that was a really great relationship. And it, it really was a hallmark on how to do a mentoring program university wide. And had it not been for that person, I probably would not have survived much at all. But because I actually had connections, not only through the dean's office, but through the provost office, when I found myself like many black faculty at PWIs and especially at large PWIs, I felt isolated, uh, microaggressions all over the place. And then I was put in this mentoring relationship that was actually more damaging than it was helpful. And so I, while I had lots of support, I ended the mentoring relationship. And I think many people started to see that individual in the way in which I knew that they were. And, but I happened to meet a man named uh, Jay Malkin at a conference. And this is important how networking can work for you also. And he was new to Virginia State and they were looking for new faculty. And he asked me to come and meet with him. And when they posted the position, I applied and um, I left an R1 to go to this HBCU. Now, Lots of people were telling me, oh, I'm not sure that this is the right decision, Nicole. You know, you really want to stay at an R1. I even had someone tell me that you wouldn't be as special at an HBCU because everybody there is Black. So, yeah, I know, which is so strange to even repeat. And and the reality is, is that everybody at HBCUs are, are not Black. Uh, three uh, quarters of the uh, faculty were maybe black, but the other quarter or so, maybe even more than that, um, were um, people who were not of color. So the reality is, which led me to the second milestone, being at Virginia State University. And being at an HBCU gave me all of the things that I think HBCUs and minority serving institutions give to students, gave me support, Um, It helped me to build my confidence. It gave me a safe space to be able to really build um, my voice as a faculty member. And I had learned some hard knocks at my first go around at Virginia Commonwealth. So I knew a little bit more. And but the other thing that changed for me was because the focus of the institution and being a historically black college, um, we had a conference called the uh, Disproportionate Minority Contact Conference. They had did the conference annually before I arrived and it was out of my department. And so my participation in that actually led to um, me meeting a very good friend of mine and colleague, uh, Dr. Isis Walton. We co-chaired the conference together and out of that networking experience and doing that conference came an opportunity for a grant And she and I were awarded the grant for a peer mentoring program that we did for four years. And then out of that opportunity came a conversation with a publisher. Um, Going back to Dr. Moriarty, her publisher contacted her, was looking for people who were doing things. And while I wasn't working with her anymore, she said, Nicole's doing something at this HBCU you might be interested in. They've got this conference and now she has this grant and talk to her about it. And what that led to was um, my first edition of a edited volume on disproportionate minority contact. 
And we've been, that was in 2011. And then we were fortunate enough to be able to do a second edition in 2017. Again, all of those things came from my leaving one institution, going to another, making new and different connections that changed my entire trajectory, not only for my career, but also for my research interest. And then the last thing is um, I decided I wanted to be the department chair. And so like many um, departments across higher ed, there was a vote. And I think I lost by three votes. I was in a department of sociology, social work, and criminal justice. And it was pretty contentious. And in the end, the provost came forward and said, well, I get to make the decision. And uh, his name was Dr. Weldon Hill. And he and I had a conversation and I've never told anything, anyone about our conversation and what was said. But the outgrowth of that conversation was that I did not become the department chair. Someone else did. But I was given an opportunity to participate in an internal fellowship program that had been created by a previous provost, uh, but was not currently active. Um, I remember him saying to me, I had no idea you were interested in administration, but now that you are, let's have a conversation about what you could do. And that opportunity led to my being his special assistant and then to eventually being the assistant uh, vice provost for academic operations. And so none of that would have ever happened had I become department chair. I suspect that I would have served out my term or, or more than one term as department chair and may very well still be in that position. Um, so it really is my example of how you think you know what you want until um, something else comes along and changes things for you. Absolutely. Um, you just never know and you meet the right people and you're in the right situations, even when you don't know you're in them. Um, and the, I think the beautiful thing is when you're able to reflect back and connect those dots, it's amazing because, again, you can't you can't make it up. Right. It's just no. it's one of those everything happens for a reason cliches. But I, I truly believe that. Um, so thank you for providing that um, background for those, especially for those who don't know your um, career story. Um, so now let's let's dive in a little bit to the nitty gritty of the focus of today's episode. Um, and that is blacks in higher education. Um, so you talked a little bit about some of the experiences and while they weren't necessarily maybe explicitly related to your race or your gender, I suspect that that is always at the forefront of experiences. In fact, I believe I fully believe that they are. So as a black woman in particular in higher ed, how do you believe your race and your gender has impacted your career? I I can remember, and I was just having this conversation with my husband, I can remember one of my colleagues telling me, uh, a Black male colleague, telling me that I was too ambitious. And I remember thinking, what is that? Because I wasn't a cutthroat kind of person. It wasn't like me above all else. Um, but what it said to me and what it signaled to me is that 
he saw something in me that made him uncomfortable. And so I would like to say that if anyone tells you that you're too ambition, ambitious, the question is, why aren't they as ambitious as you are, is actually what the question was. And, and that happened while at an HBCU. I think the other thing that is important to understand is that while being at Virginia State gave me every single administrative opportunity that puts me where I am today, um, the reality is, is that my gender was still an issue. Race sort of fell off the table when I left Virginia Commonwealth, but gender was still extremely strong. Um, I can remember when I came to Virginia State, I can't remember. At one time, we had one female dean, and then at another time, there were no female deans. And uh, then we had a couple. But the reality is, is that there was always this unwritten um, kind of ceiling that even existed there. And it was indeed based on gender. Um, So I think that being a Black woman in particular, the the things that we experience in other places, they don't go away when you're in the academy. Um, The idea of being the angry Black woman um, sticks with you. You can't be passionate about a thing. You you have to moderate your anger where men often do not. And the reality is, is that if you continue to think about each one of those things and change who you are because those stereotypes exist, you never get a chance to be your authentic self. So at some point, you simply have to decide that this is who I am. And I am okay with that. And this is how I choose to show up in the world. And those that appreciate that, then that's fine. And those that don't, okay, that's fine too. And that doesn't mean that you don't um, take criticism and feedback, because those things are always important. But it does mean that you have to be very careful about whose criticism and feedback you're receiving and why someone is trying to get you to do a particular thing. And in particular, if anyone asks you to do anything that makes you shine less bright, you stop and you ask yourself, why are you attempting to manipulate me? And why do you need me to be less bright so that you can shine? And so for me, that has always been sort of the question I ask myself so that I can try to figure out where people are coming from. And the reality is, it's so interesting. I have been, so I was at Monmouth for four and a half years, and I've been gone from you guys for about a month and a half or so now. So it's been almost five years since I've been at Virginia State. And I can remember having two male colleagues tell me that the reason that they didn't have the positions that they wanted was because I was standing in their way. And I thought about that the other day because I've been gone almost five years and neither of them have been able to ascend to where they want to be. So I suspect I was not the thing that was standing in their way all along. Mm. Uh, There was a, uh, for anyone who watches Oprah or familiar with her work, there were several aha moments (laughs) (laughs) that stuck out to me for sure. Um, 
that's powerful. You, you, you dropped several gems just in that one question. So I got to have to go back and sit with that now. So thank you. Um, so you touched on this a little bit, but I, I want you if you if you can think about or maybe give an example, thinking about all of your experiences up to this point, how do you think those experiences would have differed if you were a white woman? And if you were a white man. <laughs> wow, Nicole. <laughs> Let's get to it. We said we're going to get to it. <laughs> yeah, we are getting to it. I, I, so I, I'm going to tell you, I, I probably can't even fathom what it feels like to be a white man. Um, it is, um, pro- it, it, it might be too far of a reach for me. But because I have lots of um, white female friends and colleagues, um, the interesting thing is, is that we've had some very frank conversations. And the one thing that I have witnessed in higher ed in particular is that my white female colleagues are often fine with the patriarchy because it serves them well. Um, And what I mean by that is that if they realize that they can't be at the top of the hierarchy, then at least they know they aren't at the bottom. And in the same way that I am connected to black men, my, my, my father is one, my husband is one, my son is one. Um, In that connection, I, advocate, I support. Um, and, but my advocation and my support is so that black men aren't killed and oppressed and marginalized, but I can still call them on their patriarchy. But the reality is what I've witnessed with some, not all, but some of my white female colleagues is that they are willing to protect their whiteness and the structures that exist because those things protect their connection to white men. And that privilege washes over them as well. And so that is one of the things that has been difficult in having conversations sometimes with my white female colleagues about the especially the moment that we sort of find ourselves in now. And what I do know is that as we move along and we do some of this work in dismantling the structures that exist, it will be some of our colleagues who are, are you, you think they're with you and they are the ones that are yelling Black Lives Matter louder than anyone. But wait until I start to dismantle the things that help you, that make you comfortable, that put you in the positions in which you are in. And I think that we're going to have some really hard conversations. And so that's one of the things I've witnessed with my, my white female colleagues in particular. Mm. I got the chills. That last piece of it um, gave me the chills for sure. Um, So considering this and considering where you are in your um, 
you know, sort of at the senior level as it relates to higher education. Um, how much did that cost you? Being a black woman, moving up the higher ed ladder, um, I would imagine comes with some challenges um, and some demands. At what cost? Whether that's personally, professionally, what did that cost you? Um, as my economics professor uh, would have said, there's always an opportunity cost. And um, first of all, just being an administrator um, of any color, um, the the work is very different. There's a an autonomy to being a faculty member. Um, academic freedom expresses itself in a variety of ways, and it's not just through being able to decide which text you pick and how you present the information, but it is extremely flexible. Um, I, my children were smaller then, and so the the work is what the work is. It, it was hard work being a faculty member and trying to juggle um, research service and teaching along with my family commitments. But it was flexible because I could grade papers after the kids went to bed. Um, I could uh, take a book with me to read during the halftime at my daughter's basketball game. And so being an administrator, you lose that flexibility. My calendar is no longer my own. Um, I can start the day with a plan of work. Oh, I'm going to go and I'm going to get these things done and be like really excited about it. And two emails and a phone call in and you find out how much of what else goes on at the university impacts your day. Um, I read a book years ago called The Phoenix Project, and it talks about something called unplanned work. and it is indeed the thing that happens in higher ed, um, in particular, all of the time when you're an administrator. And so that loss of flexibility is, is something that is indeed an adjustment. Um, I will say also having to relocate. One of the things that you will find is that depending upon what type of administrator you want to be, that may require you to leave where you are. And if it means that you have to relocate um, outside of the geographic area where you live, that is indeed a cost that not only you pay, but possibly your family. Um, it costs in your community um, relationships, your friendships, because now you're not with your support system. Um, again, I was very fortunate. When I came to Monmouth, um, I, while I knew Dr. Moriarty previously, I did not have friends, but the people that I met, I will be, some of these people I will be friends with for the rest of my life. And, um, and I don't even need to say their names because they know who they are and they supported me then and they support me now. And that is a cost. And, and that was very difficult. Um, I will say that as being a black woman in administration, one of the things that I have noticed is that um, oftentimes it really is just no matter how difficult any of those things are, they're just a little bit more difficult. Just like being a woman of any color 
it's just maybe a little bit harder. And then being a person of color, just a little bit more difficult because indeed at each step you are trying to, um, you're facing what people believe about you before they haven't even had a chance to meet you. And so um, I, I love being an administrator though and enjoy the work immensely, but there is a cost to it. And, and the cost is beyond not having summers off. Um, the reality is, is that that's usually the first thing that goes and you go, wow, what happened to my summer? Um, but as a faculty member, if you really think about it, we spend our summers writing, teaching, and still doing other things that contribute to our careers. And so it's just a little bit of a shift when you go into administration. Okay, thank you. And separate from those costs, um, and especially being Black in higher education, you know, one of the things that you know, we focus so much on our, you know, is some of the challenges that come along with, you know, in this case, the intersection of race and gender and being in a position of power, if you will. But what are the opportunities? In other words, what have you been able to achieve because you were a Black woman rather than in spite of it? I think um, when there is uh, being at the table is important um and being able to have a voice at the table is far more important um i again been extremely blessed in my career that um each place that i've been i've been able to find a space for myself and to be able to do good work. And at Georgia State University, I have had the opportunity in a very short period of time to build a relationship with my provost, Wendy Hensel, and our president, uh, Mark Becker. And the two of them uh, not only walk the walk, but they, 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 they talk the talk and bring the full package of being able to allow me in this moment to be able to express what I need to and to offer suggestions and recommendations about what we need to do as an institution and what we need to do as it relates to faculty. Um, As you might imagine, we're all having very hard conversations right now um, about what it means about COVID-19, what it means about COVID-19 in particular about being Black people. Um, and the fact that we are indeed being harder hit by this uh, virus. And, um, and then the racial unrest and the opportunity that exists right now in this moment for Black voices to be heard. And so to be a Black administrator who is a female right now if you work at the right institution, there's someone sitting saying, okay, tell me what I need to know. What have I missed? And and where do we need to go right now? So it's a huge opportunity to be able to chart a path forward, I think. And um, I may not have had that opportunity um, had I been at a different type of institution, quite frankly. Yep. Thank you. 
So speaking of the seat at a table and, you know, I'm thinking about Shirley Chisholm's quote, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. Um, so you have that seat. Um, and, and what I will say before I get into the next question is, and you alluded to this earlier when you talked about getting to a place of being your most authentic self and showing up there no matter what. And here's what I'll say to you. And, you know, of course I know you, but when I went to, um, Georgia State University's website to look up your current bio, I see a picture of you in your trendy glasses and your hoop earrings. And I thought, well, I'll be damned. That's exactly <laughs> my definition of being your authentic self, right? Because, you know, while we won't specifically touch on this here, I think one of the things that many Black and Brown women face in specific positions is, do we have to look a certain way, right? Do we, can I not wear my bigger hoops? Maybe I'll make them a little smaller. You know, maybe I won't wear my hair this exact way. And when I saw that picture of you, I smiled. And that to me is a true example of being your authentic self. And the power for a faculty member of color, like myself and so many others, or a student to view that bio and see that picture, I mean, that is powerful. So I want to thank you for that because you probably didn't even know what you were doing, but it impacted me. Um, so, you know, I, I just wanted to go back to that. But because you have a seat at the table and you also have a voice at that table, talk to us a little bit about what it's like to be in that position to impact systemic change at institutions which are historically rooted in racist policies and practices, not one or two institutions in particular, but historically speaking. So what is what has that been like for you as a Black woman, knowing that so many of these policies and practices that have been into play at many universities' histories are maybe still at play? So how has that looked for you? Well, the the interesting thing is, is so I want to go to the hoop earrings, <laughs> which is interesting. Uh, during my ACE fellowship, I um, 2014 to 2015, um, I had the opportunity to meet a woman by the name of Dr. Dorothy Yancey, um, two-time president, president at uh, Johnson C. Smith and Shaw University. And I, I'd seen her before on a panel at another American um, Council on Education um, Women's Network event. And she was so real. And she was, she was like your auntie, but she was a university president. And she was the one who convinced me that I could be exactly who I was and it would be okay. And when I got to spend more time with her during my fellowship, she was just the example of how you cannot be all that this world intends for you to be and give, because we all have a purpose. You can't live that purpose by trying to be someone else, whether it's your hair or your clothing or how you talk or how you move through the world. You can only fake it for so long. And I got that from her. So, um, so shout out to uh, Dr. Dorothy Yancey. And, but one of the things that I found in this moment 
in higher education is that there are there are moments where people are saying, well, as as white faculty and white administrators or presidents, we need to listen. Yes, you do. You need to listen, but then you need to act. And so whether it's a town hall or a listening tour or whatever you want to call it, it can't be just about listening because the reality is, is that if you listen and that's all you do, one, we're not moving forward, but two, it seems so impossible to change all of it. What we're attempting to do right now is to dismantle things that have been put in place over hundreds of years and were effective in doing exactly what they were put in place to do, which was to benefit some and to marginalize others. So the reality is, is that we must listen, but then we must act. And then we must evaluate what we did. And then we need to listen again, act again, and evaluate again. If we aren't doing those things continuously, we will not be moving ourselves forward. I think that this is the opportunity for us to understand as Black faculty, people are listening. And I think administratively, we need to listen, but then we need to make sure that we put together the resources, the infrastructure, or whatever is needed to actually do then the good work. And so I think that those are the things that we need to make sure that we're doing so that we don't miss this opportunity. History will not be kind to us if we take this and we squander this moment. And so this is a chance for us to leave a true legacy in higher education. Thank you so much. So my next question was going to be, how can universities truly support Black and brown faculty, but I'm going to shift that a bit because I want to go back to something you just said, and I think is critical. Beyond the listening, when you have universities that are willing to create some of the infrastructure and move beyond that listening stage, oftentimes what happens, especially at PWIs, where there are very few faculty of color faculty and staff of color, um, what I've seen happen is the very same few get tapped to do everything. Um, And while, and I'm going to say we, because I'm owning this myself, while we want to have that voice and want to play a role, it is taxing. And oftentimes it is not viewed when it comes to tenure and promotion, it's, it's just, it becomes something that we care about. So we do it, but we are overtapped and the resources are not truly put into place because we are the resources, but those are limited. Um, so when we think about supporting black and brown faculty in combination with dismantling these systemic issues, what do you believe really needs to happen so that black and brown faculty can feel like they have a voice, but they also feel like they're supported and not exploited, to be quite honest with you? 
Uh, well, I'm glad that you mentioned that because the one thing that um, being in my administrative role and being as close to the provost and having the ear of, of being able to, to get messaging to a president um, means that I can remind people that while you need to listen to what your faculty of color have to say about their experiences and their recommendations, they are not the ones that need to do the work. The reality is, is that when I talk about the resources that are needed to be able to write the ship, that resource does not have to be the people that you have marginalized and oppressed the entire time. And you're right, it won't count toward tenure. Your, your colleagues won't see value in that work. And you do overtax the same people. And so I think the message in particular to administration is that, yes, there is work to be done, but there are lots of people who can do this work. You do not have to be a black or brown faculty member in order to do the work. And so I, I think that that's part of the message that is somehow being lost here. And I've been very quick to remind people that um, part of providing the appropriate resources, resources and structures mean that you don't lay this burden on the people who can least handle it. Because the reality is, is that they have enough on their plate. And so I, I'm glad that you said that. But I think also the having been at Mammoth and knowing the uh, few faculty of color that actually exist, um, when I was there, I believe there were 45 uh, faculty of color. And when you whittled that down to, I think, Black faculty, there may have been 10 or 12. And so the reality is, is that in an institution like that and an institution um, mom of size, you need to make sure that that message gets heard, that yes, there's work to be done. And we will help you to be able to tap some people to do it, but it does not have to be the same 45 to 20 people that you see in every single meeting because you decide you need to have a black face. Um, there are allies on the campus, put them to work, get more allies, get more people to, as sponsors for the agenda that you know needs to be moved forward. And so I think ensuring that we say it is probably the most important thing that can happen in this moment. Thank you. So my next question is really about advice that you would give. And I'm admittedly saying that I am selfish, partly selfishly asking this question um, because I'm the host for this episode and I can do that. But I think other people could benefit from this as well. What advice would you give to black and brown faculty who are considering a future move into senior level administration? I think in particular, First, you need to decide what type of administrator you want to be. Uh, there are tons of administrative opportunities throughout a campus. And um, for example, I always knew I was not a student affairs person. 
Um, I love students, but I love them in the classroom. I am, I'd love them less in their, uh, in their dorm rooms and in their, their free spaces. And so I always knew that that was not the place for me. And so my colleagues who work in student affairs, I mean, big ups to you because it is such hard work. And I know that for me, I wouldn't be able to do that day in and day out. And, but there are faculty who run institutes and centers, um, things that are closely aligned to their research. And so they're there, those kinds of opportunities. Um, another good friend of mine um, was recently the dean of the graduate school. Um, and while heavily administrative work and lots of contact with the different schools and colleges across our institution, she still had this great connection to students. And so I think finding that sweet spot is going to be important for you. So that's just the, you want to be in administration, finding the right spot in administration for yourself. As to being a black or brown faculty member who's interested in administration, I think what I have found one of the most important things for me was ensuring that one, I didn't stop my research if I was not a full professor. Um, this goes back to the structures that we we're talking about that are put in place. Once you go into administration, it is extremely difficult to then um, to get tenure, especially if you're a black or brown faculty member. If they've offered you a chance to be the department chair because no one else wants to do it and you are still on tenure track, I'm gonna say, take a hard pass. Again, it's one of the things that, as you said, when you go up for tenure, your colleagues will not look kindly upon it. Uh, and so, and, and some of those same people who voted for you to do it will be the ones that say you shouldn't have done it. And it impacted you being able to get tenure. I think beyond tenure as an associate professor, one of the things that we find is that many black and brown faculty don't go beyond associate professor. You have to decide whether or not that's one, something that you want to do and how to be able to balance that if indeed you decide to go into administration before you're able to do that. Um, I think also one of the other things is that, you know, remember I said you might have to move to get your next administrative position. Keeping your research up to date means that when you are offered that opportunity that is um, elsewhere, Ask for full professorship, present your CV, let people see that had you stayed where you could where you were, you would have been able to reach that. But now that you're going somewhere for an administrative role, that that's what you need. Um, the other thing that I know, and this is true for women and it's true for people of color in higher education and elsewhere, is that we don't often negotiate. The offer that's on the table is always, always, always going to be the offer that favors the university. And so do your homework. Know uh, if it's a public institution. Make sure that you're looking to see what the people who were paid before you were paid. And, and while it doesn't mean that you often get the exact same salary, but you should know the gap between where you would be coming in and where that person left off. Um, negotiate for your rank, negotiate for your tenure 
track up for your tenure promotion in the department that you want to be in. All of these things we often leave on the table. And if you're thinking about going into administration, you want to make sure that you check those boxes because the reality is, is that you don't know what's going to happen as you move through your career. And so you decide, well, you know what? I'm done running that institute and I really do want to be a dean. And then you realize you can't be a dean because you're not a full professor. So you want to be thinking about all of that. And while these same things happen to our white colleagues, oftentimes we don't get the same opportunities and people don't view it in the same manner because um, when it comes time to say, oh, okay, well, we know why that person wasn't able to get to that level. It's not viewed the same way oftentimes for uh, those of us who are black and brown faculty. And that just really is the honest truth. And so you have to protect yourself in those circumstances and be thinking ahead. Thank you so much. So Dr. Parsons Pollard, I've taken enough of your time today, but I want to thank you again for participating in our very first episode of This Week in Black History, Society and Culture, a podcast program of the Black and African Diaspora Forum of Monmouth University. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me.